stories carry with them great power. They can transport us into the light and into the dark. And into a place in between, a land of shadows. It is in this land where the macabre and the strange reign. With tales of terror. Tales of hope. Tales of the whimsical. And the weird. These are stories told in the shadows. And we are the Shadow Storytellers. Heroes are important to have. They help us aspire to be better, and following in their footsteps makes us feel connected to something grander than ourselves. When you have a hero, there is often no fear greater than being let down by them, discovering the image of them you fell in love with to be nothing more than a mask. This is a fear held not only by the humans of the world, but also its creatures of myth and legend. Your vampires and trolls. Your fairies and werewolves. And yes, even the witches. Pull up a broomstick while we present today's tale of magic, family, and hero worship gone awry, which we call The Coven of Everywhere Hollow. You're special, she told me, while I was sobbing into the dirt. I was eleven years old, lying face down in the school courtyard, surrounded by the plastic holly branches that I was supposed to be weaving into a garland for the winter dance. I was all scrunched up from face to toes, willing the tears to stop, telling myself each noisy gasp of breath was going to be the last one, but the waves kept coming, and it felt like all I could do to keep from literally drowning in them. There were teachers and other students not twenty feet away from me in either direction, but policy prohibited them from acknowledging me while I was exhibiting attention-seeking behaviors. That was why it startled me so much to hear an adult's voice above me. I jerked my head upward to look at her, and found no answers to my sudden questions. I didn't know her. She had a plain face that nevertheless projected a steady confidence, which stood out to me like the glimmer of water in a desert. She wore a long black dress and wide-brimmed witch's hat that definitely wouldn't have been allowed among the teachers at my school, not even at Halloween, which was both forbidden to call by name and nearly a month past. I supposed she must be another student's mother, as unlikely as that seemed, but that didn't explain why everyone seemed to be ignoring her along with me, rather than intervening to pull her away. I sniffed deeply and wiped my nose on my arm, dragging another breath through my sore throat. What did you say? I asked her. You are special, Chelsea Andrews, she repeated, slowly and clearly. That was what I thought she'd said. I sat up but kept my knees curled protectively to my chest, making a wall out of my pleated skirt. What do you mean? I asked. I was not a trusting child, and even with her daring costume and magnetic unselfconsciousness, I was half expecting this stranger to turn around and make fun of me for being too soft or making too big a deal of myself. I mean, she said, with a blend of impatience and relish, that your spirit burns as bright as a nuclear flash surrounded by old torches with the batteries run down. I could see it from across an ocean. Don't tell me you hadn't noticed. Bright, I tested out the word. My dad called me that sometimes but I got the sense that the stranger meant it with a literalness that I didn't quite understand. She sighed and continued. You are one of those of us who struggle to bother ourselves about what is normal. You'd much rather be bothered about what's rational, what's fun, and most of all about what's fair. Many adults had commented on my preoccupation with these things, especially fairness but never with anything like the unreserved approval in this woman's voice. That kindled something in my chest, and the word bright fit it well. So tell me, my little supernova, she said. What is it that's trying to dim your light today? With another smaller heave of tears, I reached into my pocket and handed her the flyer for the dance. They had just been handed out that afternoon. Well... I must say the layout leaves something to be desired, she said. But nothing to shed tears over. I can't go, I said, too distressed to fear trampling over her joke. I see. Your parents disapprove, she guessed. Or no one asked you? No and no, I said. She examined the flyer for further clues. 
Hmm, let's see what we have here. No student may arrive with a date. Well, that makes that part simpler. I gestured for her to keep reading. Dancers may not touch any area of their partners except their shoulders. All dancing will be in individual or in temporary boy-girl pairs. Oh, dear. I sniffed. That had been the first dent in my enthusiasm, but I had almost convinced myself that I could be happy dancing individually in the general vicinity of my friends before I'd read the rest. Girls' dresses must be approved two weeks in advance and may not be lower than collarbone height, shorter than two inches below the knee, or have bare shoulders or backs, the woman read on. I don't care so much about what I wear, I said automatically, certain that it would be shallow and not at all special to say otherwise. It was bad enough that the misery that had overcome me stemmed from a dance of all things in the first place. Oh, but you do care, the woman contradicted immediately. Your specialness would not allow you to do otherwise. The warmth in my ribcage expanded. Okay, maybe a little, I agreed, thinking about the sparkly silver dress I'd gotten for my birthday, with two-inch straps that still counted as bare shoulders. It made me feel like a moon princess. But I could have managed, I finished. The woman read on. Girls must accept all invitations to dance with grace and maturity. We understand that most boys your age find asking someone to dance prohibitively intimidating. So rather than deny all our students the time-honored joy of dancing, we've opted to encourage participation by making this event a safe, supportive practice environment for our boys. Good grief, she sighed in conclusion. I would have gone anyway, I said, and it felt like a gruesome confession. Every line of that flyer made me uncomfortable in ways I could only vaguely begin to put my finger on. And even though I did not yet know the word complicity, I knew I would have felt it breathing down my well-covered neck the whole evening. But it was my first year being old enough for a school dance at all, and as hard as I had tried not to, I wanted it. I would have gone, I said, tears gathering in my eyes again. Only there's this one boy who'll keep asking me, and he'll ruin the whole night, and I won't have any fun, so I might as well just stay home. The woman tutted. Well, we certainly can't have you going under those conditions, she said. But I'm not so sure about staying home, either. She reached behind her back, produced a little metal bowl with a handle, and handed it to me. There was nothing behind her back but open field, nowhere the bowl could have come from. And still, none of the teachers or students in the yard had directed the slightest attention toward her. My bright, rational little mind was warming up to stretch farther for explanations. Are you some kind of fairy godmother? I asked. The woman smiled. Oh, I'm much more than that, she said. I'm Hannah Pin. Without further explanation, she swung the bowl expectantly back and forth in front of me. I reached out and touched its rough metal surface, and almost immediately, she let go of the handle and left it balanced on my fingertips. It was really more of a cauldron, by shape, but only about the size of my cupped hands, not at all like the ones I'd seen represented in other people's Halloween decorations, large enough to boil a child inside. For its thickness, it was strangely light. If you want better than this, she said. Just focus on your own brightness, and stir three times with your right hand. After only a second's thought, I cupped my left hand firmly under the empty cauldron and dipped in my right. I felt foolish for a moment, stirring empty air, but within the first turn the light I could feel in my chest flowed to my fingertips, coating the bottom of the cauldron with such brilliance that I couldn't look directly into it. I stirred my fingers through its silky texture, and on the third turn it overflowed, blotting out my schoolyard like an undeveloped photonegative exposed to the sun. I blinked away the afterimage to find myself standing in the square of a quaint little village of stone cottages, among some thirty other girls. Most were dressed in neat, pleated school uniforms like mine, though some wore dresses fashioned after Hannah's, and others appeared adorned in their own whims, cargo pants paired with tiaras, astronaut Halloween costumes pulled over footy pajamas, 
Flocks of bats swooped overhead. Fields of corn and pumpkins and apple trees stretched out on all sides of the village's few streets, and beyond them a lush green forest encircled the whole settlement. Right above us, an oak tree towered out of the central planter of the square, almost too big for all of us to hold hands around its trunk. Welcome to Everywhere Hollow, Hannah said to me, and the other girls broke into a round of enthusiastic applause. The world of the unspecial has cheated this sister out of her first school dance, she announced to them. What do you say? Can we give her a night to remember? The girls cheered and jumped up and down so hard that they lifted all the way off the ground and hovered there before scattering around the square. They stirred their cauldrons and splashed the light out of them, like throwing buckets of water on a fire, and as it mixed with the air and the tree branches, it formed into decorations. Holly garlands and icicles and bows. One girl conjured herself a fiddle and a drum kit. I watched them work, expecting to snap awake at any moment, preferably before I could get too attached to the comfort of standing there, surrounded only by those girls, without a teacher or parent or flyer in sight to tell me how burdensome my thoughts, feelings, or shoulders were. There's nothing to be afraid of here, is there? I asked Hannah with wonder. That would be rather boring, said Hannah. No, the hollow holds terrors, but that's the best part. They're terrors we have the power to vanquish. What kind of terrors? I asked hesitantly. Well, said Hannah, turning me around and pointing to the faint outline of castle towers poking over the top of the far trees. After dinner and dancing, I've been thinking we're about due for a vampire hunt. So, we danced under the oak, and we ate. We played with the magic that permeated the hollow and responded to our thoughts. And then, we went tracking a trail of vampire carnage through the forest to its source. As the newcomer, I had the honor of driving the final stake into the heart of the vampire lord who wanted to collect us all as living batteries to fuel his supernatural powers. By then, I didn't even care about the gushing fountain of blood soaking my moon princess dress or rather a magical recreation of it, that I'd attended my welcome dance in. I'd already gotten the chance to be elegant in it, and while crawling through catacombs and flying at breakneck speeds through thorn-choked ruins, I'd found that the magical material adjusted easily to being adventurous in it as well. The only thing that could have made that night even better would have been not having to go home. As I grew tired, I felt myself lose substance in Everywhere Hollow and struggled to grasp at things as the details of my bedroom at home intruded. When one world had dissolved completely into the other, however, the cauldron remained, looped over my arm, waiting for next time. Over the next few years, each time I returned to Everywhere Hollow, I found that it had expanded, both in population and in physical size. New cottages popped into existence wherever they could, and popular hangouts like the tavern just off the square expanded their layout to accommodate dozens, hundreds, thousands of citizens. Many of us had no shared language except for the local magic that we were all learning to wield, and I came to understand that our quaint little hollow was, in fact, literally everywhere, just hidden a few inches out of sight. I'll admit to a moment of selfish disappointment in those early days, when I realized that Hannah's definition of special was wider than I'd anticipated. But then Jessica, my best friend from school, received her cauldron, and the excitement of sharing my new escape with her drowned out those petty thoughts. Soon, there were boys in the hollow, too, though not as many, and in place of cauldrons, Hannah presented them with long, gnarled walking staves to enter with. I was sure everything would go wrong when I first saw them there, sure they would use those staves to chase us around and scare us away, but Hannah had a knack for picking the ones who didn't seem to mind sharing a world with a controlling majority of girls. There were fights here and there, and ill-chosen words, but in the end, almost unfailingly, we were all friends. I had never known I could be friends with boys before. More than just a shared escape, the cauldrons and staves became a way of recognizing kinship with each other back in the other world. Friendships materialized in minutes that would once have been blocked by years' worth of wariness, and seeing cauldrons and staves on the street every day helped remind us all that our friends within the hollow were as real as we were, with lives elsewhere and things in them to run from. 
It was about a year after I received my cauldron, which by then felt like the entirety of my life that mattered, when Jessica and I were preparing to raid a fortress of riddles in the mountain with our two newfound best friends, Peter and Nigel. Peter was crying that day, as he often did, wiping his eyes periodically as he reviewed his syllogisms. The rest of us stayed close, occasionally rubbing his back or conjuring him a new tissue box to save him the trouble. We had tried asking him about the tears, and all he would say was that the hollow was the only place they were allowed. Rather than ask him again for details, I said something to him that I'd been thinking about for a while. It's too bad we can't use magic on the other world now and then. Just a little bit. Peter looked away from his book, covering his face and crying harder, but he was nodding behind his hands. Yeah, Jessica agreed enthusiastically. I'd make Pastor Don drink a soda full of dirt, just like he did to me, and I'd throw in a handful of worm guts. He did that to you too? I asked. Though my stomach hurt just thinking about it, enough to make me tempted to change the subject immediately, there was a dark appeal in not being alone. Oh yeah, she said, after he caught me holding hands with Tristan under the table. Then she broke into a terrifyingly accurate Pastor Don impression. Can you taste why there's no room in heaven for impurity, child? We cackled together, not because it was funny, but because laughing at Pastor Don felt wickedly forbidden, and the discovery that it was even possible brought with it a sharp relief like lancing a boil. What about you, Nigel? I asked, to keep the pressure off Peter. What would you do? Nigel shrugged awkwardly. I mean, he said, are you sure we can't affect the other world with magic? Has anyone tried? With a puff of smoke, Hannah appeared across our table full of plans, examining a list of paradoxes as if she'd been sitting with us for hours. I think it's a marvelous idea, she said. Another puff of smoke later, we were standing in the square, surrounded by what looked like the whole population of the coven at the time, thousands strong. Until dawn, Hannah announced to the crowd with a wide, knowing grin. You all have until dawn to fly invisibly among the unspecial, doing as you please, magic included. Be judicious, my friends. Pastor Don ended up in a real-world hospital that night, his colon packed from top to bottom with sand, while his wife cried into the shirt of the police officer who showed up to talk about the dozen or so secret accounts he'd been using to talk to underage girls. All the credit for that one goes to Jessica. I was still far too naive by then to even think of putting a secret revealing spell on his computer. The only thing Nigel wanted to do on his turn was steal a handful of cash out of his parents' wallets and go on what would have been the dullest shopping spree ever if he hadn't been so excited about it. We helped him pick out boxer shorts and a facial razor, left the money on one of the closed registers of the nearly abandoned department store, and then watched him test the razor on his still smooth face in the bathroom. Before first light, we did make it around to Peter's house, where he showed us the bare walls and empty shelves where his music collection had been before his father had caught him with an eyeliner pencil and thrown it all away. His mother's cosmetics were now locked in the family safe. It wasn't even hers, Peter explained softly, rubbing his upper arm without taking his eyes off his sleeping father, as if expecting our invisibility to wear off at any moment. You're not supposed to share them, I looked it up. So I snuck away and got one at the grocery store. Paid for it and everything. We cursed his father with bright red zits all over his face that didn't fade for a month. Peter picked the placement himself for maximum repulsiveness. The invisibility that Hannah could wield within the ordinary world did not, it turned out, hide the cauldrons and staves from the unspecial at all times. Most of the time they were as visible as any other physical object, and though most adults ignored them at first as just more of the unaccountable clutter that accumulated around their kids, Someone somewhere drew the connection between these new possessions and the night of unexplained destruction. The word witchcraft was spoken. Questions about where the artifacts had come from and what they could do passed by phone, by article, by PTA meeting. And soon the adults did what confused adults could generally be counted on to do. They confiscated the cauldrons and staves, tried to break them, punished anyone found with one, but the magic seemed to have accounted for this. The moment a stolen cauldron or staff was unobserved, even for the length of an eye blink, 
it disappeared and reappeared at its owner's side. The cauldrons wouldn't break or even deform. A video of one getting the better of a hydraulic press soon made the rounds on the evening news. The staves were just as tough and seemed to repel fire, in spite of their rustic wooden appearance. And as for punishment, though we could not hold ourselves in everywhere hollow all the time, the cauldrons and staves whisked us away automatically any time an adult's wrath fell on us for holding them, no matter how tired we were, as if they felt responsible. More than the defense mechanisms of Hannah's magic, however, it was her gift for inspiring the hurt and lonely that protected us through the world's discovery of our witchcraft. Her identification of new members slowly stretched both forward and backward in age. My parents, for example, apologized for ever leaving me in Pastor Don's care in the first place and asked me, with an unfamiliar earnestness, what exactly was going on with all this magic stuff? My explanation probably sounded like nonsense, but within a week of their gesture, Hannah presented them with a cauldron and staff of their own to see for themselves. It made them a lot more comfortable with the whole thing, though they rarely visited the hollow more than once or twice a year themselves. As the years and decades passed, even churches and schools like mine largely seemed to accept, or at least resign themselves to the existence and ubiquity of the coven, redirecting their vitriol to newer, smaller, stranger apparent threats. That first generation, though, the witches of my age who'd grown up in the hollow more than in our ugly realities of origin, we were always our own particular thing, almost another coven within the coven. We had chosen each other, and our own little world, knowing it might cost us whatever place we could have had in the other one. We had fought the first, fiercest monsters together, before their weaknesses had become common knowledge, willing to die for the chance to see ourselves light up a bit of darkness. Right after most of us had just watched our unspecial classmates test out the latest tricks for sneaking minute amounts of liquor into grad night events, we toasted with tankards of ale and danced naked together through the forest clearing under the full moon. We held each other and whispered our eulogies together whenever our numbers shrank, occasionally at the hands of the monsters in the woods, but more often due to the intractable horrors of the other world we had come from. We comforted each other with reminders that when Katie's body was cornered at the wrong end of an unspecial's gun, or when Michael's was consuming itself alive with cancer, their minds had been safe in the hollow until the end. There were bonds between us that simply could not be recreated by other means. Everyone I ever fell in love with, I met among the brilliant girls and stalwart boys of the hollow. After many romantic escapades all around, Peter and I found ourselves trapped alone together in a cave overnight. We spent the time talking in a way we somehow had not in all our years adventuring in a group. A year later, we were married under the big oak tree at sunset, with Jessica and Nigel standing beside us. Hannah herself performed the ceremony. My parents and even Peter's mother and sister came. We stayed that whole night in the same tavern where we and our friends had celebrated more successful battles than I could count. Childhood was full of passing interests, habits, and coping strategies that evaporated as soon as they had served their purpose. But Everywhere Hollow was a permanent fixture of my life. I was certain of this when I was bussing my last table of the night at the restaurant I had found myself working in as a young college graduate of the other world, and Etta, another of the waitresses, hurried over to meet me at the trash can. In the months we'd worked together, I had exchanged maybe three words with her that weren't about food but she leaned in close as if she were about to fill me in on our long-awaited plans to pull off the heist of a lifetime. "'You're in the coven, aren't you?' she whispered. My cauldron was sitting in my purse in the back room, and the tattoo I'd gotten of it on my inner wrist was covered in accordance with the restaurant's policies, but neither was a secret. There were plenty of moments when she might have seen one or the other. "'Yeah,' I said. "'Are you?' The coven had been much too big for much too long for anyone to know everyone in it. I... I think so, she said. Think? I said, confused. That's what I need to talk to you about, she said. Or to someone like you. After clocking out for the night, Edda and I sat in her car together, and I waited while she fidgeted with the steering wheel, working up to whatever it was she needed to say. Finally, she shook her head and said, You know what? 
I'm just going to show you. She reached into a box on the back seat, padded with tissue paper, and pulled out a gleaming clay bowl painted a dark metallic gray and strung on a wire handle. What do you think? she asked. I looked at it, bracing for the probability of disappointing her. It's beautiful, I said honestly. Did you make it yourself? She nodded. But I'm not sure what happens next. I always hoped there'd be some sort of, I don't know, orientation meeting? I sighed. I'm not sure what you've heard about the coven, but the magic doesn't work with just any cauldron. It starts with Hannah finding you and presenting you with one of the cauldrons she makes, and then, no, look, Etta stopped me and dipped the fingers of her right hand into the homemade cauldron. I watched, so full of pity that it hurt, until the blinding light that poured out of her fingertips burnt that pity away. I scrambled in my purse for my own cauldron and stirred it quickly to catch up, grabbing her free hand in mine to try to hold us together as we broke through into everywhere hollow. We were standing at the edge of the forest, looking down into the village, able to watch the inhabitants without being noticed. "'You're here too!' Edda exclaimed. "'So I'm in the right place! I am a witch!' "'Are you kidding?' I laughed with amazement. "'You're not just a witch. To get here by yourself? You'd have to be one of the most powerful witches in the world next to Hannah Pin herself!' I hugged her in celebration, as if she were my oldest friend. Seeing her vindication at being here was almost like seeing Everywhere Hollow for the first time myself all over again. A few months of working beside each other at a distance was nothing to a few seconds of sharing this magic and all that it promised. Come on, I led the way down into the village. I'm meeting my husband and friends in the tavern anyway. This is going to be the best orientation meeting you've ever been to. Peter responded about the same way I had to Etta's story, starting with a hug. Jessica conjured her a drink and started excitedly asking her to try small bits of magic, marveling at how quickly she picked them up. Nigel mostly stared at her with a quiet, heavy sort of awe. Soon the story spread beyond our table, and Etta ended up flying around the room, leading a drunken, enthusiastic chorus of an adventuring song I hadn't heard since my first year in the Hollow. Whether she'd learned it by magic or from some other witch, I never asked. I don't know how Hannah missed you. Jessica sighed, leaning on her hand as the night wore on. You should have been here with us this whole time. Yes, I agreed, almost before Jessica had finished saying what I'd been thinking. The distance that had always existed between early members like us and newcomers felt so irrelevant with Etta. She was about our age, held none of the reluctance many later recruits had toward the coven, and if I'd had Hannah's gift for seeing spirits, I had no doubt Etta's would light up the whole town. But for a tragic error, she was family. And now, because of that error, we had such a lot of catching up to do. I'm going to tell her, Peter said, getting up from the table with a mischievous twinkle in his eye. You're going to wake Hannah at this hour? I asked. Sure, said Peter. How often do you get the chance to tell Hannah Pin she made a mistake? Are you sure that's a good idea? Nigel asked, a hint of anxiety sobering his voice. Oh, no, said Etta, picking up on it. I wouldn't want to bother her. It's fine, Peter waved back at her reassuringly. We had Hannah go way back. She's the best. She's like a second mom, only she doesn't do that mom thing where she tells you in private that you're right, but that as a reasonable person, it's your job to let people who can't be reasoned with win all the time so they don't flip out. You know, you're gonna love her. Right, everyone? Etta smiled hopefully but Nigel stood up from the table, flew across it, and stopped Peter before he could get to the door. I think we should talk about this, he said. Talk about what? asked Hannah, standing in the doorway with her arms resting on the frame, looking as if she'd been there for hours, if not for the fading puff of smoke. Oh, uh, Nigel mumbled. What's going on in here? Hannah directed her question more generally with an opaque smile. An awful lot of people just started thinking my name all at once. Following a few nervous glances from other tavern patrons, Hannah settled her gaze on Etta. Forgive me, she said, her smile getting tighter. 
I'm getting a little on in years. Did we meet at that library in Nebraska? No, Etta admitted, slouching and managing to look up at Hannah even though they were roughly the same height. My name's Etta Cooper. She held out her hand with her cauldron hanging from her wrist. And we've never met before today. It was an awkward moment, uncomfortably public, unplanned and doused in alcohol, and I could have come up with a thousand rationalizations for Hannah to handle it less than ideally. But nothing I had ever seen in my life, in the hollow or the other world, prepared me to process her reaction. Viper! she shrieked, lunging at Etta, the sound stretching out to be something not quite human. The entirety of the hollow seemed to shriek and lunge along with her. The walls of the tavern closed in, glass crunching as they contracted, and the wind howled its way in like a beast, smothering every lantern and candle, so that Hannah's face was lit only by the suddenly blood-colored moonlight streaming in through the crumbling ceiling. Etta shrank before her, slouching deeper as if she were being literally crushed, as if all the air had been whisked out of her. Get away! Get away! Get away! Hannah screeched at Etta, between calling her other things I won't repeat, advancing on her, slashing through the air toward her with lengthening fingernails until Etta's back was against what remained of the nearest wall behind her. Okay, I'm going, Etta promised in panicked surrender, holding up her empty hands. Etta, no, I said automatically, running over to put myself in the middle, to keep things from escalating any further before they could have time to cool down. You don't have to- I don't stay where I'm not wanted, Etta said sadly, stirred her cauldron counterclockwise with her left hand in a move I'd never seen before, and vanished. I want to skip this part so badly. I could almost rationalize telling myself that it's not a part of the story because it never actually happened. I never took Hannah Penn's side in this. I never hurt anybody. But if the confrontation with Etta in the tavern had been isolated, if the unprompted hate, the flat-out meanness that I saw rear up in Hannah that night had gone back into hiding, if it had all just ended there, without apology or correction, but without sequel as well, I might have... I would have found a way to forget it. I was ready to. I wanted to. I wished, I prayed that she would let me. Perhaps fortunately for my soul, but unfortunately for so many other people, it didn't end there. It got worse. Etta avoided me the next day at work, as if we had never started speaking, and I hated how relieved I was not to have to think of what I could possibly say to her. I rushed home after my shift, and Peter and I barely stopped to kiss with our otherworld bodies before turning to our cauldron and staff. By the look on his face, I guessed that he had the same sick feeling in his stomach that I did, but we couldn't just let things in the hollow, in our home, stay as we had left them. When we materialized in Everywhere Hollow, we weren't in the square where we usually found ourselves. We were at the far end of the street of cottages, where a checkpoint had been conjured into existence complete with a pair of stone archways reminiscent of otherworld metal detectors. Make sure you're holding your own assigned cauldron or staff as you pass through, called Robbie, one of the more active coven members of our parents' generation. Be prepared for inspection of any irregularities, added Amber, a woman my own age who'd been singing in the tavern with us only last night. I'd fought trolls with both of them on multiple occasions. This is bullshit! shouted someone I wish had been me, who was quickly grabbed and dragged out of line. Peter and I shuffled through the arches in a daze, helped along by the sight of Jessica already in the village, waving for us. Who knew what she might want? Maybe she was in trouble. Maybe we were late for an adventure already in progress, the one that would end with us fixing whatever bizarre horror had somehow seized our leader's mind. When we reached Jessica, however, she just gave each of us an exhausted hug, and couldn't seem to find anything to say. Rather than go back to the tavern, we shut ourselves up in the cottage that belonged to Peter and me, built a fire, and whispered stories of the old days until we fell asleep and slipped back into the other world. 
For days, I kept waiting for my chaotic, rebellious, fair-minded mentor to return. I missed her terribly, but the more I looked back at my life in the hollow, the less I saw her there. The more I saw us, how desperate we all were. How much we needed to get away, to have someone, anyone, tell us that we were meant for any kind of power. I saw us taking care of each other, taking the best of what we had needed to hear and passing it along. And I saw us being assholes who looked the other way, long before now. In fact, those were the moments where her presence stood out the most clearly. I saw her gathering only the skinniest and palest of us into welcome crews and goodwill parties who interacted with the other world as the coven became more publicly known, and us pretending it was nothing but a coincidence. I remembered how I made the cut only once, when I was in the middle of a particularly bad bout of anorexia and dating a boy. I remembered how Hannah had managed to simultaneously brag about and ignore me whenever I had gained weight or shown an interest in anyone else, and how that had seemed so revolutionary to me at the time compared with the vicious scrutiny of the other world. I thought about the night of mischief and invisibility, and how impishly bright her smile was whenever she checked in on us. Even knowing everything I know now, I'm not sorry for any of the targeted strikes the four of us made that night. But that was only part of what happened. When we had no particular goals of our own, we met up with others in the coven and flew through the streets, flocks of kids ranging from nine to fifteen or so, hurt and angry and high on our first taste of real-world power, breaking windows, stealing candy and toys, blowing up lawn ornaments, tripping late-night pedestrians. Petty things we could almost have done without the help of magic. Mean things that served no purpose beyond proving to ourselves that, with or without the gift of invisibility, we existed. There wasn't enough time to pick through the past with due thoroughness now. The days kept ticking by in the present, and Nigel had not returned to the Hollow since the night of Etta's visit. He was living in Canada at the time, and Peter, Jessica, and I only had an outdated email address to contact him outside the Hollow. That had never seemed like such a dangerous oversight before. We had to use a locator spell to get an approximation of an otherworld address for him, and then beg and wheedle and trade to line up three days off work to drive up to it together. We knocked on a dozen doors of an apartment complex before a man answered us with a look of recognition on his face. He waved us inside and showed us to a framed picture of the four of us, Peter, Nigel, Jessica, and me. I would have called you all if I'd known how, he said. I was only Nigel's roommate for a couple of months. Always felt like it should have been someone closer to him, handling everything. Where is he? I asked, though this other man's voice was already half an answer. Dead, the man confirmed. How? Jessica asked, her voice cracking through denial and right into anger. Hung himself in the closet, the man said. No, but... Peter sputtered. I mean, was there a note? Yeah, just a moment, the man said kindly, stepping away into one of the bedrooms. He returned with Nigel's staff, a piece of notebook paper tied around it with string. He slid the paper free and handed it to Peter, and the staff to me. Hannah Pinn showed me I could enjoy existing, Peter read aloud, then flipped the paper over. I can't do it as her enemy. That was all. Determined to find some shred more, some elusive closure, I turned his beautiful, swirling, knotted staff in my hands. Unlike Peter's and every other coven staff I'd handled, it flexed and creaked with real wood grain in my hands. This was not a construct bestowed by Hannah's impervious magic. It was a magic of its own, a mix of nature and need, and must always have been so. We have to stop her, I said. The words felt disembodied, as if they must have been spoken by someone braver and channeled through my mouth by mistake. Peter and Jessica nodded silently, staring down at the table we were sharing in an otherworld cafe along our drive back southwards. Everything she built, Peter muttered, 
tracing a crack in the table with his finger. Everything she gave us. So many of us wouldn't... I wouldn't be alive today without her. I know it. Nor would I, I said. But that doesn't make her right. No, of course not, said Peter. It just... it doesn't make sense. Yeah, why us? said Jessica. And why not Etta? Why not Nigel? Who in the world is kinder and sweeter than Nigel? Who was more in need of a family? Yeah, said Peter, but I meant... She knew that family wasn't the only thing we needed. She knew how much we needed the chance to fight evil, and she knew what that meant, what it looks like, how to synthesize it for us. How could someone who understands that turn out to be... He trailed off and looked up at the TV in the corner of the dining room. Even staying out of the hollow for the day hadn't helped us escape Hannah's ongoing meltdown. She had become an otherworld celebrity during the rise of the coven, but had been notoriously reclusive until these last few days. Now she seemed to be on every talk show, every news segment, every channel. People have been saying that my position on the interlopers is wrong, even objectionable, she was complaining to her current host. It's just an egregious assault on freedom of speech, both in and out of the hollow, and I can tell you now, any witch heard repeating these unacceptable criticisms of me will have their magic suspended immediately, and those hiding here in the other world, witch or unspecial, can expect legal action. I have a theory, I said stirring my iced tea to avoid looking up at Hannah's unironically indignant face. Remember the troll who fed on insecurity? The megalomaniacal goblin who declared goblins superior to all other life forms and tried to eradicate all information that didn't say so? The vampire who wanted to collect us to add to his own power? What if she didn't make them out of our worst fears and whatever else we needed the chance to fight back against? What if they were all made of herself? You think the good parts were the act, all along? asked Jessica. It's the only thing that makes sense, I said. So she's just another monster, Peter said with finality. But what can we do? We can't just stick a stake through her heart. She's a real person from the real world. That'd be murder, right? <laughs> that did make things harder. As violent as life in the hollow could be, there had always been a clear distinction between magical constructs for fighting and those of us who were real and alive. And besides that, said Jessica, she has no weaknesses. I've never seen anything hurt her, ever. Well, I pointed out, we do know one thing that scares her. Etta was scheduled to close at the restaurant on the last day of our trip and we got back into the city just in time for me to wait for her in the parking lot. Peter and Jessica waited farther down the street so as not to overwhelm her. Even so, Etta took one look at me, stubbed out her barely-started-after-work cigarette, and jogged right to her own car. "'Wait, please,' I said, following after her. "'I need your help.' "'Fuck you, witch,' she said, jerking her driver's side door open. "'I don't need your cool kid's coven anyway.' Please, I said, dropping to my knees on the asphalt behind her bumper, not caring how dramatic I looked or whether the manager or any of our co-workers might wander out at any moment. I'm sorry, Etta. I am so sorry. Etta turned around to look at me. She sent people here. Did you know that? I shook my head, though I wasn't surprised. I thought maybe I could just back away. But no, that wasn't enough. There were over a dozen of you in here tonight alone, all asking to talk to the manager, all complaining about how having to look at an interloper was ruining their appetite, how they'd never come back if I wasn't fired, not that they'd ever even come here before anyway. I'm scared to go home. I'm scared to come back here. I'm scared to do magic. I'm scared... She trailed off, running out of ways to contain what she was scared of into little packages. I'm sorry I brought you there, I said. It's not even the issue, said Etta. 
And I'm sorry I didn't do anything to stop her. I went on. I'm sorry I didn't come with you, right then, right when it happened. I'm sorry I went back without you. I'm sorry she ever mattered enough to me for any of that to seem like a good idea. I'm sorry I didn't see this coming. And I am so, so sorry to ask anything of you now. That you can be sorry for, Etta confirmed. But you're the only person I know. The only living person, I corrected myself. Who knows anything about magic other than how to play with what she gives us. I don't know who else to turn to to fix this. I think you know enough, said Etta. You know where her power comes from, you just don't want to admit it. I took a breath. From us, I said. It all comes from us. Etta nodded. When I stir the cauldron to get to the hollow, I can feel my energy going into it. I just always assumed I'd be donating it to something good. Me too, I said. She even dropped a hint about how it worked on my first mission with that vampire we fought. Great, said Etta, and I regretted mentioning yet another day she'd been excluded from. But I, I don't know how we'd get people to cut her off, I said. Or if they could, if they tried. The cauldrons and staves have minds of their own. They don't break. They always come back. When other people try to take them. Etta sighed, abandoned the driver's seat of her car, and stepped over me to open the trunk. Here, she said, picking up another of her clay creations and handing it to me. The end of it was a cup, and the rest formed a stake that could be pounded securely into the ground and stand at about waist height. At a touch from Etta, the cup emitted a cloud of smoke. This is what I used to calibrate my prototypes, she said, when I was trying to get myself in tune with the everywhere hollow frequency. That's the best I can describe it. If the rightful owner of a cauldron or staff places it in the smoke, it should disconnect it from everywhere hollow and recalibrate it to the blank bit of magic I've got it set to. Kind of like forgetting a Wi-Fi network, only probably without being able to get it back. I can set it up with a psychic message explaining it to people and begging them to use it. But no one can make that choice for them. Peter and Jessica came with me to deliver the recalibration pillar to the spot where it would do the most good. Etta helped us tweak the attunement of our cauldrons and staff just enough to let us materialize a few feet inward from the new checkpoint, and from there, we sprinted wildly down the main street to the square, which in spite of everything remained almost as packed as ever. The pillar pulsed its message outward as we went, along with its column of smoke, and I could see the magical understanding of its purpose dawning on faces one by one as we passed them. No one threw themselves forward to be the first to offer up their cauldrons or staves, but plenty of bystanders left what they were doing to follow us at a safe distance, watching with wary curiosity for what was about to happen. Hannah waited for us, nestled regally in the roots of the big central oak tree where I'd planned to plant the pillar. Of all the people to side with the enemy she said sadly, when we were close enough to hear. I never would have believed it would be you three. You mean four? I asked. Or are we just going to pretend this is how we always were? Hannah smiled easily, proudly. The interlopers have to be stopped. They're the greatest threat we've ever faced. How are they a threat? Peter asked simply. We were hunted, Hannah reminded us. Everyone here has suffered the abuses of the fearful and ignorant. I have been spat down on since time immemorial. Which doesn't leave you a whole lot of excuse, does it? said Jessica. It makes it my turn to spit, Hannah crowed. It makes it my turn to decide who's allowed to have power and who isn't. Who's a person and who isn't. Who I like and who I don't for whatever quibbling reason I choose and make everyone deal with it. Time owes me that. She glanced around the crowd, not quite embarrassed, but challenging. I pressed the pillar stake down into the dirt between the roots until it could stand on its own. Hannah looked at it, then at me with a sneer. You can't ask these people to do what you're not willing to do your- I held my cauldron over the smoke, 
and everywhere hollow, its cottages, its forests, its fields, its tavern and the square with the big oak tree, vanished into a void of grey. It took me a while to realize that the greyness was the new place, not a place between places. It stretched out on all sides, empty and potential-filled and limitless and desolate. Edda sat where there would normally have been a floor, holding her cauldron, waiting. She turned to give me the smallest look of acknowledgement. Peter and Jessica appeared beside me, and for several seconds I thought that would be it. Then another party of three popped into existence a little farther off in the gray, followed by a party of four, a few singles, one at a time. When the flow of arrivals stopped, our new coven, new family, could perhaps have filled a small auditorium. For today, at least. What do we do now? asked a heavyset woman with ribbons in her hair. I took a breath to hold the weight of the question. We keep being witches, I said. Hannah Pin isn't the only source of magic in the universe. Edda's living proof of that. Nigel's was. We start over. From scratch. We stared into our cauldrons, at our staves. Glances slid sideways now and then to Etta, the one person among us who had mastered even the first step of what we were all about to attempt. Etta didn't look back at anyone, did not accept or respond to the implicit request to become our new teacher but nor did she leave our gathering before placing her hands around her cauldron, almost in demonstration, and summoning a warm, multicolored glow. Flowers burst into life around us, beginning to fill in the blank space. The Coven of Everywhere Hollow was written and performed by Fiona J.R. Tichinell. Narration was provided by Matt Carter. This episode was edited by Fiona J.R. Tichinell and Matt Carter. The Shadow Storyteller's theme, written and performed by Dennis Tichinell. The Shadow Storyteller's artwork by Kristen McQuiggan of Drop Dead Designs. For more information on the Shadow Storyteller's podcast and our other fiction works, please visit our website at theshadowstorytellers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe for more information on upcoming episodes. We hope you had fun, have a happy Thanksgiving with your family of origin and or choice, and we'll see you again soon.